0: Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know Yahweh, his going out is sure as the dawn he will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth may god bless the reading of his words you may be seated It is my great privilege and joy to be with you all again. Thank you to the elders here for their kind invitation to minister God's word to you. I bring with me, as always, the greetings from Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Placerville, California. We are very thankful for your prayers. We know that you pray often for us, and we would want you to know that we pray often for you, and we are glad of our bonds in common in the fellowship of the sufferings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well as we turn to God's Word this morning, we come to the book of Hosea. We are somewhat jumping into the middle of the book here. Um, We have gone through uh, this uh, book ourselves in our own congregation, and I thought it was appropriate that perhaps we look at this short section. In chapter 6, in the first three verses here. There are few more impassioned appeals to return to the Lord than the one given here by the prophet Hosea. As we read in verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. It's particularly remarkable here given the context of this passage. Back in chapter 4, the prophet Hosea began the Lord's covenant lawsuit against his people Israel for their breaking of the covenant as they worship the false gods. And then as we come to chapter 5, we see the prophecies of God's fierce wrath against an unfaithful people. We see that in particular in verses 12 and verse 14 of Hosea chapter 5. And yet against the backdrop of God's fierce coming judgment, chapter 5 concludes with the Lord's message of grace, even as we read at verse 15 of chapter 5. And so with the prospect of the Lord's returning his favor to Israel, this causes here the prophet Hosea to sound a call at the beginning of chapter 6, to sound the call to return in repentance to the Lord. So how might we summarize these first three verses of chapter 6? We could do so in this way. Here the prophet sounds a call to Israel to repent of her sin and return to the Lord. And if she did so, she could expect to be received home by a God of abundant grace. We're going to think about four things this morning as we unpack these verses. First of all, turning back. Secondly, restorative judgment. Thirdly, a revived people. And then lastly, knowing the Lord. So if you're taking notes and taking the points down in prospect, number one, turning back. Number two, restorative judgment. Number three, revived people. And then fourthly and lastly, knowing the Lord. So first of all, then turning back, verse 1a. The call to repent is one of the primary biblical themes. John the Baptist, Christ's great herald and forerunner, came, we read, with a baptism for repentance. Mark chapter 1 at verse 4. And our Lord Jesus himself began his own preaching ministry with the message, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1 verse 15. Now, biblical repentance contains three important elements. Three important elements. First of all, there must be a sorrowful mourning over sin. We see that clearly illustrated in the case of Nineveh in the time of Jonah. Jonah 3 verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. That teaches us this morning that there is such a thing as false repentance, a repentance that grieves only over consequences of sin, but not over sin itself. Perhaps we are most familiar with this when we find in others and and in ourselves times when we may be sorry, but only sorry that we got caught out in our sin, that somebody knows about it, but otherwise they or we might not have been very sorry at all over those sins. That is not true repentance. There must be a sorrowful mourning over the sin itself. In the spirit of David against you, you only, have I sinned, he says, in his true repentance. We must be sorry for the breaking of God's law and not that we simply got caught out. True repentance grieves over sin itself. But then the second, more, second important element of repentance is a turning away then from that sin. Again, we have that illustrated for us again in the book of Jonah, Jonah 3 at verse 8, and particularly at the second part of that verse where we read, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. It is necessary that there is a true mourning for the sin. But secondly, it is also and equally as necessary that we turn from that sin. And then the third important element of true biblical repentance is turning back to God. Turning back to God. And we have that illustrated for us here in our text. Hosea 6 verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. The people here, the professing people of God, had turned from the Lord. They had worshipped at the altars of the Baals, the false gods of the Canaanites. But now they are called to forsake their idols and return in true repentance and in renewed covenant faithfulness to the Lord their God." Now having considered those three vital and non-negotiable elements of true biblical repentance, we might ask the question though, as those who find themselves always in need of repenting of our sins as we have done this morning in our service, in our prayers of confession, the question often comes to our minds, is it really possible to turn from sin to God? And if I do so, will God receive me? Is it possible to do it? And if I do so, will this God receive me? We read in our passage here, the call of Hosea, the Lord's prophet, to wayward sinners, to wayward Israel. But the call of Hosea to return to the Lord indicates that true repentance is possible. This is not something that we need wonder about and be uncertain about. The prophet says, come, let us return to the Lord. Now, certainly, in the previous passages, in the previous chapters, the Lord had spoken through this same prophet Hosea of the certainty of judgment that would come to unrepentant sinners, the certainty of judgment that would come to them in the form of exile and slavery. But against that backdrop, The prophet now speaks that it is possible, gloriously possible, to return to come back to the Lord, even when Israel would no longer exist as a nation. This was foretold many years before the time of Hosea. And the time of the Lord's judgment when he would bring the Assyrians and take Israel, the northern kingdom, into exile in his wrath and judgment. It was foretold many years before in the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. We read in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verses 46 through 50 these wonderful words. Solomon here is praying at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. If they sin against you, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you. And then he continues in his prayer then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. One commentator reflecting upon that great. Prospective reality says this, quote, Having forgotten their religion, the Israelites may not have comprehended Solomon's prayer. But Christians remember that the temple was where the lambs and goats were daily sacrificed, pointing forward to the true atonement offered by Jesus on earth the cross, end quote. And so the same Jesus, who began his ministry by calling for repentance, ended it with a call to saving grace. John 12 at verse 32. Our Lord Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now since the rest of chapter 6 in the book of Hosea indicates a poor assessment by the Lord regarding Israel's spiritual condition. It seems that the people at this time did not respond promptly and positively to Hosea's plea. And a greater part of the remainder of the book of Hosea deals with that reality. But nonetheless, how important it was for the prophet here to point out the way of return to the Lord. It was important that at this point, in what we might say is the middle of the book, even against the backdrop of the unresponsiveness of the people immediately to this glorious appeal, the prophet nonetheless points out not only the possibility of repentance, but of the glorious willingness of the God of grace, the great God of heaven, that God of whom we thought in our Sunday school hour. the incomprehensibly holy God, is willing to receive sinners who return in true repentance and faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as it was important, even though the people did not immediately respond here and would nevertheless suffer the great judgment of God in His bringing of the Assyrians and their exile. And so it points to us today that it is equally vital. Though men, women, boys, and girls may not immediately respond positively to our great preaching of the gospel, calling them to repentance and faith, we still preach that good news. We still make that great appeal, come, return to the Lord. Calling to a wayward culture in our day, as it was wayward in the day of Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord. Well, that brings us in the second place to restorative judgment. Restorative judgment, verse 1b, the second part of verse one Hosea here follows his initial call by pointing out Israel's great need to repent. For he has torn us, he has struck us down, Hosea verse 6, 1b. These descriptions here are the very terms that God had used back in chapter 5 to foretell his judgments. These very judgments were on the people's doorsteps, as it were, at this time in the form of the Assyrians. It is likely that the Assyrians had already begun to conquer the northern kingdom and take over their territory at this time. And so Hosea's point here is that the calamities that the people faced were already present amongst them. And that they faced them not as some happenstance of history, not as some uh, uh, circumstance random of an Assyrian expansive empire building, but were as the results caused ultimately by the wrath and judgment of God against the sin of His people. What does that teach us about our God? It teaches us that God is holy. He is a holy God who must and will punish all sin. That is a relatively easy thing to say in few words. But it is a great reality that men, women, boys and girls do not want to hear. They did not want to hear it in the day of Hosea, and they do not want to hear it in our day. But it does not make it any less true because you and I and others may not want to hear it. God is a holy God who must and will punish all sin. That is a very practical consequence for each and every one of us here this morning. That's not just a statement of theology, though it is that. It is a statement that has a great consequence practically for you and for me. And the consequence is this. If you, if I have not yet repented truly in that biblical way that I've laid out, truly sorry for sin, turning from it and turning to the Lord, if we have not done that, if we have not sought God's mercy through the sin-bearing work of His Son, Jesus Christ, then we are in a desperate and woeful situation this morning. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, to quote that famous sermon title of Jonathan Edwards. We are faced with the God who is holy, who must and will judge all sin. And so that means your sin and my sin, if we will not repent and return to the Lord. What's the only true solution for your greatest problem this morning? The problem of your separation from God by your sin. What is the only solution for that great problem of the alienation between us and the holy God? It is that we must turn again from our sins and turn to God in and through the one that He has sent, the one and only mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus the Lord. We must turn to God. Come, let us return in a penitent faith. The lesson that is clear, the application is clear, isn't it? This morning. It's not difficult. Even the youngest who can understand the English language can understand this morning. We are to turn from our sins. We must repent of them at once we must turn from sin and turn to the Lord, to a God who is not only holy, gloriously holy, but to a God of mercy and grace, one who freely offers salvation, even through the blood of the Son of God that has been sent, even to save sinners, Such as we are. Now, our need to repent makes it vital that we also understand our opportunity to return to the Lord and be delivered. Yes, we must repent, but if we repent, will we be received? And Hosea makes Abundantly clear, gloriously clear here this morning that the Lord receives penitent sinners. Notice how Hosea points out that God has torn us, but then adds immediately that he may heal us. The Lord has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Here, the Lord's judgment is restorative. Of course, if we want to see that in New Testament language, the Bible makes that clear throughout. The author to the Hebrews, Hebrews 12.10 says, "'He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness.'" God has healing mercy for afflicted sinners who repent, Perhaps most clearly, 1 John 1 and verse 9, we often use this, don't we, in the great prayer of our confession and in the great assurance of God's promise to forgive penitent sinners. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you doubt God's Word this morning concerning His willingness to forgive penitent sinners? Here is God's Word, plainly revealed, in language that we can understand, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John Calvin puts it like this: he says, quote, We must remember that the beginning of restoration is a sense of God's mercy. That is, when men are persuaded that God is ready to give pardon, they then begin to gather courage to repent. End quote. Calvin there perhaps at his best as pastor of his people. Often people think of Calvin as great theologian, as he surely was. Often think of him perhaps though just in terms of his great theological treatises and great works. And perhaps don't know of him as much, perhaps you don't know of him as much as a great pastor of people. And Calvin knew of his people's struggles. What gives them the courage to repent? I've sinned before, and the Lord's forgiven me, but I've done it again. Will God forgive me this time? Or will a day come when God will say, you know what, you're done. You've had even your seventy times seven. And I'm not going to do it anymore. Calvin says to that soul, that sheep, we must remember that the beginning of restoration is a sense of God's mercy. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When men are persuaded that God is ready to give pardon, they then begin to gather courage to repent. People of God, whatever our sins have been, and we have not loved God, even since last we have confessed our sins a few moments ago, we have not loved God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And this side of glory, we will never do that personally. Perfectly, perpetually. We will always be lawbreakers. We will always need to repent. But God is always ready to receive and forgive those who repent. Take courage. Come, let us return to the Lord. God's judgment here was restorative. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Well, that brings us then in the third place to a revived people, verse two, a revived people. The Lord will restore his broken, repentant people to life, verse two. The God who brought these wounds And offered to bind them, also possesses the power to give and restore life, even life after death. It is no less that Jesus Christ offers to sinners, offers to you this morning, whoever you are, if you will repent and come to him in faith. Apostle Paul, thinking of the conversion of such sinners as we are. Conversion of those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. How did he speak of that? How did he picture that? Ephesians 2 and verses 1 through 10, that glorious passage speaks of it as nothing less than spiritual resurrection, life from the dead. And that's exactly the same language we have here in the book of Hosea in chapter 6 and verse 2. Notice here how Hosea foretells of Israel's revival in somewhat curious language. He says here in uh, verse uh, 2, He says here, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. What what is the prophet speaking about here? Well, first of all, the Lord will not be slow in restoring life to those who return to him in faith. Two or three days is not a long time, is it? In the big scheme of things in terms of even our short and brief span of life as a whole. Two or three days is a relatively short period and that's the imagery here that they would not have to wait long before the Lord would restore them. But secondly and more specifically of course by the third day A dead body in the ancient world was clearly beyond the possibility of normal restoration. Now, of course, we need to think just for a moment or two, perhaps more than they would have done in the ancient times, concerning these things, because in the Lord's goodness and mercy, we do have some ways of restoring to life uh, those who uh, perhaps uh, we pronounce dead, not for three days after, but certainly for some period of time. And uh, we have the uh, ability to use uh, equipment, defibrillators, all those kinds of things to restart hearts that have stopped. Um, But of course there was none of that in the ancient world. And so if a body had certainly been dead for three days, particularly as we think of the situation of the death of Lazarus to whom Jesus went to raise him from the dead, um, that was abundantly clear to them, wasn't it? Even as they came to the tomb, they were reluctant to take the, uh, the, the stone away because of the odor that would already have begun to accumulate because of decomposition. Uh, so that's the picture. Don't think of modern medical technology and science. Uh, think of ancient times. Uh, so by the third day, a dead body was clearly beyond the possibility of normal restoration. And yet we are shown here, even in that condition, that is no barrier to the sovereign power of God to restore life. We know that physically as Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and pronounced that great sovereign word, that great dominical word of power, Lazarus come forth. And Lazarus came forth fully restored to life. And so it is in the spiritual realm, which is the emphasis here, that even in the imagery of in their dead, in their trespasses and sins, in their rebellion, in their unfaithfulness, in their idolatry, this is no barrier to the sovereign power of God to restore life to penitent sinners. Of course, the testimony of the New Testament, of course, as we read this in the full light of all of Scripture, suggests that Jose's ultimate meaning here is on the third day he will raise us up. And he says that, of course, draws our minds, does it not, to anticipating that glorious redemptive event that occurred on a different third day the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even as Paul refers to it, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, and as Luke records in Luke 24, 46 through 47, in the words of our Lord Jesus himself. Well, of course, here we remember that the northern kingdom of Israel was never physically restored from their captivity and exile. Unlike, by contrast, the southern kingdom of Judah, that though taken into Babylonian captivity, returned in the Lord's mercy to Jerusalem. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul applies Israel's promise of restoration here in the book of Hosea to the coming of the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile land. You turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans and chapter 9 and verses 25 through 26. You will see here, as Paul is referring to the Jews and the Gentiles and God's purposes with regards to them, he cites Hosea, not Hosea chapter 6, but Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23. But this same circumstance of how God is going to fulfill this promise of restoration to a people who went into exile, into Assyria, never to return to the physical land of promise in Palestine. How does Paul explain this then? How did God fulfill this? Well, the people of Israel at Hosea's time would be assimilated into the sinful world Of Gentile Assyria, but there they would await the call of God to come, to return, even through the great message of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed many centuries later. How could it be that Jesus, who received the fulfillment of their promise of resurrection life?" Well, the answer to that great question is, of course, that Jesus went to the cross on behalf of His people. And as His people's covenant representative, Jesus died and was raised for them so that by believing His gospel, they would receive the revival and restoration of life that God had promised. And so now alive in Christ through the Gospel those scattered peoples of Israel that we see here in the book of Hosea those who would hear and believe Paul says are called as then now Gentiles having been assimilated into the cultures of Assyria and beyond, they would be called, they would hear, they would believe, they would repent, and they would come, and they then stand justified in the presence of God, just as Hosea here foretells, that we may live before Him. Hebrews 8 verse 2, uh, Hosea 8 verse 2. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? As you see that Paul, again, back in Romans 9, speaks of Jews. How does God fulfill this promise? Even for those who have been scattered, never to return, never to, uh, uh, to be back into a land of promise, identified as were those who returned back to Judah. Even as he contemplates that, he cites then the book of Hosea, Hosea 2 verse 23, and says that's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike for all who have been called and who repent and believe. It's a wonderful thing. And so God extends this promise to everyone who repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so when we hear Hosea's words today, As we do this morning, and as we come to see and realize that Israel's conviction of sin applies equally to us, we too have sinned, we too have turned aside, we too have turned to the idols of our hearts, perhaps not to pagan Canaanite idols, Baal, but as Calvin so wonderfully says, so insightfully says, In the Institute, the heart of fallen man is a factory of idols, he says, not just one or two. I don't think perhaps uh, Calvin fully appreciated our modern day of 24-7, non-stop manufacturing technology, Um, but at least he had some insight to say of the great ability of the human heart, fallen, to not just turn occasionally or to the odd idol. Here and there. But he says the human heart by nature in sin is a factory. Mass production of idols. So what was so for ancient Israel is so for us. And so God, we pray, comes to convict us of our sins. As he came to convict the people of their sin. And then to appeal to them to turn from their sin. And to turn back to God and to know His great mercy and grace. Turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. His resurrection then on the third day will be for us as well as for them. Well, fourthly and lastly this morning then, we come to knowing the Lord, verse three. Knowing the Lord. It's always the grace and mercy of God that Animate our repentance and open the door for us to return to him. God must work first and then we respond. Hence then Hosea urges the people to not only repent, to return, but then to press on to know the blessings of God's great salvation, verse 3. If it is by the grace of God that sinners return, and it surely is, Hosea reasons then, We must, therefore, turn to the God of grace. Well, what does that mean? Hosea says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. It means we must know God as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. We were thinking about that in our Sunday school hour. Not knowing those things which are the secret things of God, but the revealed things Here in the immediate context of the book of Hosea, it means we must know God in covenant faithfulness, drawing near to Him in worship which pleases Him, with hearts that are filled with love and praise to a God who showed such mercy and grace. It means a life of fellowship with God as His Spirit indwells each of His children. As our walk is guided by the Word of God as we walk with Him in the spirit of prayer. Oh, let us know the Lord, Hosea says. He said that to His people in His own day and generation. And He says that to us, people of God, this morning. Let us know the Lord. He cries that to Sadly, often the shallow, compromised church of our own time. One commentator puts it like this, meditating on Jose's words here. He says, quote, Let us press on with all our vigor and might, setting aside every idol and false support to know God better and live more fully before his face. What will happen? if we make it our great priority, brothers and sisters, to know the Lord in this way, to press on by God's grace in covenant zeal. Verse three, his going out is sure as the dawn. Here the prophet speaks of the certainty of God's receiving us through penitent faith in Christ. One thing we can be sure of is when darkness falls on the earth, that whilst this world continues, a new dawn will appear the next day. That's the picture here that the, the prophet draws on. With certain, equal certainty, though we have passed through the darkness of our sin, we may await God's coming again when we seek him in repentance and faith as the new dawn. What is dawn? It's a time of hope, isn't it? A new light has come to the world and so it will always be for those who seek to know the Lord returning in pen, in penitent faith but that's not the only picture Hosea then adds a second picture here what it is to know the Lord he describes an equally reliable blessing verse 3 he will come to us as showers as the spring rains that water the earth as rain refreshes the dry land and causes it to sprout with bounty so will God's coming bring renewed spiritual life to those who seek Him. It is not sin and its temporal pleasures that bring bounty to life. And in our heart of hearts, we know that. Him Rider cries, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters fail. And they do, don't they? You know that, I know that. It is not sin and its temporal pleasures that bring bounty to life, but rather the Lord and His saving grace. Perhaps there's someone here this morning who's wondering, but you know, I've turned aside for so long. I don't know where to start to return. Where do I start in seeking to know the Lord again? You start in God's Word. You start in trusting the promised Word of God as He says, Come, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you. And then continue to study that Word as the guide, as the pattern of life, by way of gratitude and thankfulness, not by way of means of earning your salvation, but as the Pattern of the way of obedience out of gratitude and thankfulness. Study that word, delight in His precepts, this delight in His law. Seek to have the blessing of God's Spirit upon that reflection and meditation day by day. That is God's appointed means to bring life to every parched soul, to produce a harvest of spiritual life and good words. The prophet works the prophet Isaiah says this Isaiah 55 verse 6 seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will what pardon yes But if you know your Bible well, you will know that's not what it says, does it? For he will abundantly pardon, abundantly pardon, like the light of dawn, like the refreshing showers to the desert. And we know of that in the West, don't we, here? Whether it's in Arizona or California, we know what the parched desert is like, but the refreshing rain of the grace of God. So as we close this morning, What are we to do? Come, God says. In the words of the Lord Jesus, Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 7 verse 37, again, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without will you not come to the Lord this morning whether it's for the first time or whether for it's the how many times will you not come seeking and receiving the grace that will heal you and bind you and raise you to new spiritual life If you have indeed come to Jesus already, then the last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, places that same word come on your lips. Having come, you can then echo that. having been caused to be healed, bound up, receiving new spiritual life. Then that word come is placed on our lips. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And if your heart calls to him, Jesus answers, Revelation 22, verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And when he comes, brothers and sisters, in glorious consummation, it will be like the light of dawn, piercing the night of darkness, as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And so we pray, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. And we hear the words of Jesus in response, I am, surely I am, coming soon. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you might have done your work in our hearts and souls this morning, that you would have humbled us as sinners before you, that we might not just be simply sorry that others and you know about our sin, but that we might be truly sorry for that sin, for our law-breaking, for our idolatry, and that we might turn from it by your grace, and that we might turn to you, and that as we do so, O Lord, we might know, whether for the first time or again and again and again, which is the pattern of the Christian life until you come, that we continue to repent of our sins and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord, and know that you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, gracious and merciful, the one who receives sinners. Receive us again, O Lord, even as we come to you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.